Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Michelle Montague. She is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Texas at Austin. She is interested in philosophy of mind and metaphysics, and she is the author, among several books, of The Given Experience and Its Content. So, Dr. Montague, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, perhaps I will start with some basic concepts and definitions just to put things into context because I think it will be important for uh, our conversation later on. Uh, so what is mental content from a philosophical perspective? So when I think about how to answer that question, I like to start with conscious mental states or conscious mental experiences and then ask about content um, related to those. And the way that I define content in my book, The Given, is I start with the idea that the content of a, a particular mental experience is everything that you're aware of and having that experience, everything that is given to you in having that experience. And so this will, the reason I start with that wide notion of content is that it's able to capture everything that a subject is aware of and having a perceptual experience or thought experience or emotional experience. So that will include not only, you know, sort of physical objects that your perception, uh, perceptual experience is about, but it will also include the phenomenological, the phenomenology that's given to you in having that experience. And so I guess I should just say that the, that notion of content, that wide notion of content defined in terms of everything that is given to you is much wider than is typical, um, is much wider than uh, analytic philosophers typically define the notion of mental content because they'll define the notion of mental content almost exclusively in terms of truth conditions of the mental state or accuracy conditions of the perceptual state. And so I think that's too narrow and it doesn't really capture um, uh, the true content of a conscious mental state. Mm -hmm. But I mean, when we talk about content, are we referring to things like thought? Yeah, I mean, I think that you can use that notion of content to define any mental state okay. that you have, any conscious mental state, whether that's a perceptual experience or a conscious perception. So seeing, you know, so consciously seeing the red ball or a thought experience, um, thinking about uh, uh, the state of India, or um, a, an emotional experience, feeling sad about what's happening in India. So it's meant to cover all of the different types of mental states that we typically have. Mm -hmm. But these mental states, according to your definition, they have to be conscious, or do you also include unconscious processes? <laughs> That's a very tough question for me. And I, I just will admit that it's one that I feel very unsettled about. Um, so uh, it's very common. Many philosophers now accept that there's some kind of unconscious mental content. And there are lots of psychological experiences that are, are psychological experiments that um, uh, seek to show this. Uh, but I think that if there is such a thing as unconscious content, which I'm not, 
totally convinced of, then our understanding of it has to be grounded in conscious content. So I think that our grip on the notion of content has to begin with conscious mental episodes. And so once we have a grip on that, then we can ask about unconscious content. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, in your first question, you mentioned at a certain point phenomenology. So what is phenomenology really? Well, I have a standard conception of what phenomenology is for analytic philosophers. It's just the uh, sort of experiential character or in Nagel's famous phrase, the what it's likeness to have uh, an experience, what, it, what it's like for the subject. And that's what I mean um, by phenomenology. It's the the um, what it's likeness that allows you to identify your mental state and to distinguish it from other conscious mental states. So it's, you know, I should point out that that um, notion of phenomenology is not the sort of original notion of phenomenology that started with the continental philosophers, uh, you know, the study of uh, experience. It's sort of co-opted that notion and turned it into a way of characterizing experience. So you can see the relation between the two uh, ways of understanding that notion, but it's just something to keep in mind because phenomenology, you know, is sort of uh, originally the study of conscious experience. Mm -hmm. Another important concept here, I think, is intentionality. So what is it and how does it fit into the larger picture we're painting here? Well, I have a very minimal conception of intentionality, and it's just sort of that a state has ofness or aboutness, uh, and so that qualifies as being intentional. So it's a very minimal conception. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so that's just a simple answer to that question. <laughs> okay. Uh, and is there any relationship between intentionality and phenomenology? I, th I think so. I think there's a, a sort of a very intimate relationship between those two um, concepts. And in fact, I think um, phenomenology uh, fixes or determines um, intentionality. So, for example, if you take a visual experience as of a red ball, that uh, visual experience has a particular phenomenological character. It's there's something it's like to see the shape and color. Uh, and that, I think that what it's lightness, say, of uh, the phenomenal redness that you have um, determines the intentionality. It, it suffices for attributing the property of redness to the ball. So the what it's lightness determines or suffices for uh, part of the intentionality of that experience. So there's a very intimate relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, picking up on the title of your book, uh, what do you mean by the given? What is the given in this context? Well, for me, I use that concept just to define content. So mental content is everything that's given to one in having uh, uh, an experience, everything that's given to one experientially or that one is aware of. So I was using the given as a way of defining content. And then that allowed me, since I think, you know, what's given to you in having, for example, a visual experience is not only the phenomenology, but let's say what, you know, physical objects that your experience might be about, um, using the given to define content was a way of um, 
being able to give a wide definition of that content because I mean a wide definition of the notion of content because as I said, many analytic philosophers restrict the notion of content to truth conditions or accuracy conditions. And those are only worldly conditions. And so they can't capture that. Well, in addition to be, you know, sort of representing worldly conditions, we're also given a rich phenomenological array in any, in any typical perceptual experience, for example. Mm -hmm. So does your approach have anything to say about the nature of consciousness or what consciousness is about? Well, it, insofar is that I think, you know, part of what I do in the book is I say that I think um, conscious experience is a self-intimating phenomenon. So um, in any experience, you're not only aware of, say, a, a physical object, but you're also aware of the very experience itself. So there's an awareness of awareness feature built into consciousness. So insofar as um, my view has a metaphysical, uh, I make a metaphysical commitment, it's to that claim that consciousness is a self-intimating phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And so that's a, a sort of a, a claim that um, goes back to Aristotle. Mm -hmm. Right. But I mean, do you have any take on the question of what consciousness really is? Like, for example, there are people that say that conscious, consciousness is an illusion, that consciousness is an epiphenomenon. Do you have any take on that? Well, I definitely don't think it's an illusion. I think that consciousness um, is something that we know just in virtue of having it. It's something that we know better than any other thing that we could know. Um, so I, I definitely don't think it's an illusion. Um, I, 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 you know, sort of insofar as the other kind of metaphysics, is it physical? Is it, you know, do I have a dualist view? I have to say that um, because I have a realist view of consciousness, um, I've always sort of thought that some, it's either dualism was, is true or panpsychism is true. And so insofar as I'm committed to metaphysics in that sense of consciousness, those two views um, are competing, competing views for me. Mm -hmm. Right. And what is perception? Well, perception is the way that we have access to the world through our sensory modalities. And, you know, there's a sort of complicated story you can tell about uh, the different sensory modalities, um, the phenomenology that they involve, the um, way in which phenomenology is uh, related to intentionality. So as I explained, you know, there's a what it's likeness to experience red, and that experience uh, suffices for attributing the property of redness to the ball. So you, you get phenomenology determining intentionality. And then also um, a part of that is this self-intimation thesis that um, in any uh, conscious experience, there's always an awareness of having the very experience. So that sort of lays out the kind of structure of a perception, at least a conscious perception. Mm -hmm. But perception is not the same thing as the senses, right? I don't, I, well, it depends what you mean by the senses, because, um, I think that in philosophy, a lot of uh, work has been dedicated to the question about how to distinguish perception from cognition. 
And I don't think that, that, that there's an interesting distinction to be made there, because I think that um, cognition and perception both involve the deployment of concepts. So I think that in perception, in typical human perception, it's already laden with concepts, even from very young. So I don't, I don't think that you can draw a distinction. I don't think the interesting distinction is to be drawn there, but I think you can draw a distinction between cognition and sensation. So if you think about like the phenomenology of redness, there's a what it's likeness, that uh, what it's likeness represents what philosophers sometimes call low level properties, colors, sounds, so forth. Um, and that is essentially sensory phenomenology determining the attribution of low-level properties. And then I think that associated with the deployment of concepts in, in um, mental episodes is cognitive phenomenology. And so I think there's an interesting distinction to be drawn between cognitive phenomenology and sensory phenomenology. And then that can undergird uh, an interesting dis distinction between cognition and sensation. Mm -hmm. Right, I understand. But I mean, when we perceive something in the world, it is at least in part what we get in our conscious experience. It's at least in part um, a mental construct, right? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a tough question. I suppose, I mean, I have recently been drawn to somewhat of a Kantian style line about what is involved in cognition and perception. And that is, you know, you, because we sort of are, we have some of these built-in concepts at the fundamental level of our perceptual structure, there's a sense in which um, we contribute, you know, certain uh, concepts to our perceptions. And so I guess you could say that, you know, that it, the world is partly a mental construct. So, you know, for example, I don't think that there are colors in the world as we experience them. So we have mm -hmm. this experience of red, and I don't think there's a property in the world that matches that objectively. And so in that sense, we would be constructing the world. And I think the prob that probably the same is true of shape and spatial properties. So yes, but that doesn't mean that there isn't something out there that's independent of us. Right, but uh, I mean, uh, there's something out there that is independent of us, but do we have some sort of access to it? I, th I mean, I think so because, uh, well, it depends what you mean by access, right? So do we have mental access to it? I'm not sure because, you know, if I follow this semi-Kantian line, I do think that there are sort of things in themselves that are independent of us that we stand in causal relations to that then give rise to, say, our perceptual experiences. And then you can ask about, well, what's the intrinsic nature of the thing in itself? And I don't think that we have intentional access to that thing. However, if you are a panpsychist, then we, and you think that the intrinsic nature of reality is consciousness involving in some sense. We can know something about the intrinsic nature of reality because we ourselves know what consciousness is. And so if the intrinsic nature involves something, is consciousness involving, then we can know 
we can know something about it. So it depends. I mean, I think the panpsychist has has a route to saying something about the intrinsic nature of reality, you know, independent of us, the thing in itself. Mm -hmm. So there's one type of phenomenology that we haven't talked about yet. What is evaluative phenomenology? Um, I think evaluative phenomenology is a distinctive kind of phenomenology um, that is associated with our emotional experiences. So um, it's, it, it, I essentially think that emotions are experiences of value. And it is evaluative phenomenology that allows us to represent and experience value. So, for example, if I feel um, sad about a, a friend's death, I think that uh, we attribute sadness to our friend's death and we represent that death as having negative um, value, disvalue, and we represent that um, in our emotions in terms of evaluative phenomenology. So we experience that value. Mm -hmm. And it's, sorry. Uh, no, I was just going to ask you if uh, evaluative phenomenology is the same as emotions. Yeah, I think, I think they're um, definitive of emotions. I mean, they're, they're sort of essential to emotions. They're part of what emotions are. I mean, and emotions are more than that. They're not just phenomenology. They're not just this um, negative or positive evaluative phenomenology. They also can be, you know, sort of richly conceptual. They probably also involve um, sensory phenomenology, you know, sort of a rapid heartbeat or um, constriction in your neck or, you know, sort of whatever various bodily feelings that might accompany emotions. So they're complex, but... Um, they're also involved this evaluative phenomenology, which is an experience of value. Mm -hmm. So, and then we have this sort of interactions between, let's say, cognition co or cognitive phenomenology, evaluative phenomenology, and the other sorts of phenomenology, right? I, yeah, I think that in our human, exp I mean, I, should, I guess we sh I should say, um, Cognitive phenomenology is a kind of phenomenology that is typically associated with conscious thoughts that's irreducible to any kind of sensory phenomenology that may be associated with those thoughts. So, you know, there's something it's like to think that snow is beautiful or there's something it's like to think that the pigeon has left its nest without the eggs hatching. That happened in my garden upstairs. So, um, yeah. So anyway, yeah, I think that in the typical human experience that, you know, everything is just a, a mix, you know, our concepts and cognitive phenomenology is intertwined with perception and sensory phenomenology and, uh, you know, evaluative phenomenology. So it's all kind of intimately connected. Mm -hmm. So with all of this in mind, uh, would your approach have anything to say about epistemology and basically what we can know about the world? Well, I'm really drawn to, okay, so I haven't sort of said whether or not I think value is objective. Um, and, and when I defend the idea that there is such a thing as a valuative phenomenology, I try to stay neutral on that question. But I'm very drawn to the um, idea that there is objective value and to the idea that emotions can provide us with evidence about uh, about objective value. 
So this is a thesis that I'm a big fan of Franz Brentano. Um, you can probably tell from the book. And he has this thesis that um, emotions provide us knowledge of objective value. And I th I love that thesis, but defending it is quite hard. And um, I don't know if anybody believes his defense, but if that's one of the ways in which I um, have an epistemological leaning, <laughs> at least. Mm -hmm. But I mean, uh, there you were talking about evaluative phenomenology, but in terms of, uh, I mean, knowing other aspects of reality. Well, I think we can know consciousness. Mm -hmm. And I think we can know things about the nature of consciousness. And so insofar as consciousness is part of reality, then we can know uh, the intrinsic nature of reality because we can know the intrinsic nature of consciousness. Can we know um, the intrinsic nature of things independent of, say, me, the subject? And I think that's uh, obviously a much more difficult question. And, you know, if I'm drawn to this semi-Kantian thesis, like I said before, um, the one route I can see to knowing the intrinsic nature of reality independent of me is if the uh, nature of this external intrinsic reality is consciousness involving. And so because I have the concept of consciousness and I know what consciousness is, I can extend that or use that concept to try to understand the nature of this you know, ind independent intrinsic reality. I don't know if you if you find that very satisfying. Um. Yeah, I was just thinking perhaps, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure if this is, uh, this is the correct way to talking about things, but I mean, we have our uh, mental experiences and then we have reality. So uh, do, can we tell something about how reality really is through our mental experiences? I think that we can probably um, tell something about the causal patterns of reality based on the causal patterns of our mental experiences. So we might think that there's a match between the causal patterns of our experiences and the causal patterns of the nature of reality. So maybe that's a more satisfying answer for you. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I, I mean, you're interested in philosophy of mind and metaphysics. What is the relationship there? Well, I mean, just, you know, sort of historically in my philosophical life. Um, well, I've taught sort of different metaphysics classes on, you know, what is, what is the nature of properties? What are objects? Uh, you know, are there universals? And so um, insofar as there might be some sort of overlap between philosophy of mind and consciousness and those kinds of questions, one of the things that I've wondered about is whether we should be understanding consciousness on a object property model or something like more like a stuff model and so that but that's a real a really recent question for me that i've just started thinking about um and so uh there's some overlap for me there that i plan to write a paper on but i i haven't yet um and then you know sort of there are metaphysical questions about um 
the nature of um, what philosophers call propositional attitudes. And so um, many philosophers construe beliefs, desires, thoughts as relations between subjects and content. Like that's just a standard kind of gloss on the, the metaphysical structure of intentional states. And I th actually think that's wrong. Um, in a paper that is going to be forthcoming soon, I argue that actually the structure of intentional states is just subject content that we don't really there aren't really all of these different intentional attitude relations that should be metaphysically included in our theory of intentionality all that there is is subjects and they're given some content and any kind of um, distinctions that you wanted to capture by postulating that belief is a relation that desire is a relation that thought is a relation you can capture purely in terms of content so that's actually another area where mind and metaphysics have come together for me. Mm -hmm. But here we're focusing on the metaphysics of mental phenomena, right? Not, yeah, not other realms of metaphysics. No, no, uh, no, it's, it's true. It's the metaphysics of mental phenomena. So insofar as other kinds of metaphysics and how that might overlap with mind, um, I mean, you might say that there is some overlap insofar as you want to say, well, we have this color experience, but there's nothing in reality that matches color as we experience it. So that's a metaphysical claim. And you might give various scientific arguments for that. You know, science doesn't need to postulate colors in order to explain you know, sort of what happens out there. So we don't need colors. So, that, you know, and if you think that, okay, we have these spatial experiences, but there's nothing in reality that uh, matches space as we experience it, the intrinsic nature of space may not be like that at all. And so that's another area that there's uh, some overlap between mind and metaphysics. Mm -hmm. but, but how can we be sure that the ways we perceive the world uh, are, not, are not the same as the things that are not mental phenomena really are? We can't be, yeah, I don't think we can be sure. <laughs> I'm certainly not sure. I mean, all we can do is um, kind of offer arguments for and against, you know, reasons for and against. I don't I don't think there's going to be any kind of knockdown um, argument that leads to certainty. Mm -hmm. but, but would science be perhaps the best tool we have to try to figure out those questions? Science gives us some, I think, um, sources of argumentation about those questions, um, how science sort of talks about it, uh, talks about space or talks about or doesn't talk about color, offers us some, you know, sort of um, source of reasons for concluding, you know, this or that about the nature of reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking that could it be that the way we perceive things would have any bearing on their, on the nature of those things, on their metaphysical reality, let's say? Um, well, some people think that um, consciousness um, causes the wave function to collapse or, you know, sort of there's something in, you know, sort of some overlap there. And so, but I don't really know, I, I don't, yeah, I don't have much to say, I think, 
um, other than what I've already said about that question. Mm -hmm. but, but I mean, if consciousness corresponds, uh, for example, if we accept panpsychism, then consciousness would be a property of the universe. Yeah, consciousness would be the intrinsic nature of the universe. But I don't think anything that the panpsychist says conflicts with what science says. It's perfectly compatible with everything that science delivers. All of the um, knowledge about causal relations, uh, the relational structure of the universe is completely compatible with panpsychism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just wondering, perhaps this is too, uh, simplistic, uh, too simplistic a way to put things, but I mean, if we accept panpsychism, then uh, all things that exist have a consciousness property, uh, are, they are at least, and there are different levels of consciousness, let's say. Yeah, I think that would be one way of describing it, because, you know, one thing that the panpsychist is committed to is that, uh, I mean, there are different versions of panpsychism, but one thing is that if you think, you know, at the intrinsic nature of reality, there are these consciousness involving, I don't know, basic particles, then that type, what, whatever that consciousness is like, it's going to be very different from the con very different from the consciousness that we experience. And so that's why I said, you know, to know something about the intrinsic nature of reality, um, would be an extrapolation on our concept of consciousness. I mean, we can't really, we don't experience what it's like to be a cork, for example. We don't have that experience. And I don't know if we can ever really know what that is like, um, but we can know something about it insofar it's, it itself is an experience and we have the concept of experience. So it would be kind of like extrapolating from our own experience to uh, saying that an alien can have experience, but we don't really know what that alien's experience is like, but we know something about experience. So mm -hmm. we can know something about that alien experience. So. Uh, yeah, but, uh, I mean, the, these are very complicated questions, but uh, consciousness. Uh, so for example, if we say that uh, an atom has some sort of consciousness to mm. it. Uh, would that, in that case, be also a mental phenomenon? Phenomenon. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, it, it depends what you mean by mental. So um, you might have a more robust notion of mind or mental, but it would be experiential. And so, if you thought that being experiential entailed mentality, then it would be mental. Uh, just before we go, where can people find you on the internet? Um, well, you, I have a, uh, you can go to UT Austin's homepage and they have a faculty list and I'm there and then a link to my web page is there, which then links you to Academia EDU. So um, yeah, that's where you can find me. Okay, I will be leaving links to all of that in the description box of the interview. And Dr. Montague, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've been doing the channel for more than three years now. And it is thanks to people like you that it's been running for so long. And so 
If you like what I'm doing, please pay a visit to my Patreon page or to PayPal. All of the links are in the description box of the interview. And to consider making a pledge there, support the show. And otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share, share the interview, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Kessel, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Enrique Alenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Ruth Gervoz, Bo Weingart, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windega, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugney, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Yevon Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslan Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Sam, uh, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dez Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londoño Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Miran B., Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Max Bailby, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Alan or uh, Al Orwitz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Elman, João Linares, Lida Cosmidi, Saima Afzal, my producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafinia, Kian Gilligan, Sergio Codriano, Luis Caetano, Tom Venegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardos France, and Niroban Balachandran. And my executive producers, Michelle Rugieski, Rosie James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.